I like to say that I don't want to live forever. I just don't want the fun to stop. Today on episode 122, I'm speaking with Bill Gifford, who is the author of Spring Chicken, Stay Young Forever or Die Trying, and the co-author of the recent bestseller, Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity, written with Peter Atia, MD. Bill wrote Spring Chicken back in 2015 when he was just beginning on his exploration of health span and longevity and used his journalistic skills to share his findings with us all. And more recently, Bill worked with Peter Atia to write the latest longevity blockbuster with the latest best scientific knowledge about how each of us can slow the rate of aging and keep having fun for a long, long time. All right, let's talk to Bill Gifford. Bill Gifford, welcome to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Nice to be here. Well, hey, Bill, your spring chicken book is uh, not all that new, but it's new for me. <laughs> and I have to tell you that I, I found it to be very entertaining. You're a good writer. So thanks for that. Thank you. <laughs> I could see that if I had read it back when you wrote it, that it would have been amazingly eye-opening. But I've been going down this path now for a little while. And so what I was stunned by was how much of all the stuff that I thought was new was not new because you were writing about it <laughs> years ago. Yeah. yeah. But still, you know, the main thing was that it was a very interesting, enjoyable read. And anybody who hasn't read it, they should get it. Because, uh, you know, there's some new science, obviously, in the, you know, the last, uh, you know, seven years. Uh, but it's still very relevant and it's very fun. Oh, thanks. Back in 2016, when you wrote that, and I guess you wrote it actually before. Came out in 2015. Oh, it was? Okay, 2015. Well, yeah. you must have been in your 40s when you wrote that book. Yeah. And I got to tell you that when I was in my 40s and in my 50s, early, middle to 50s, I was like into athletic performance enhancement. I mean, I was like racing my bike and I was mm -hmm. training hard. And yeah, of course, I was getting older and, and, I, and I could tell my results felt that, but I was compensating. I was able to compensate. I was actually getting faster as I got older because I was getting smarter. I trained better. I ate better. I recovered better. And yeah. I was just able to, yeah. and so I was totally not interested in like avoiding heart disease or not getting Alzheimer's or things like that. That's for old people. And I'm, I wasn't an old person at that point, you know, but it wasn't that long ago actually that that curve shifted for me, and I started becoming much more interested in being a healthy person for a long time. And so um, uh, that's yeah. one of the ways that yeah. I uh, came across your book. Tell Bill, tell our audience a little bit about yourself in this book, and yeah. how did you come to write it? You know, so young. Well, so I was a, you know, I, I raced raced a few bikes uh, nice. myself, but in my twenties and thirties. And then at one point, you know, it's almost inevitably, I had the, the big crash and, and broke my collarbone badly. Mm -hmm. I've got two pins right here. Yeah. So the doctors were like, well, it's, it might take a while to heal because you're so old because of your age. <laughs> and I was like, I was like 36. I was oh like, my what God. the hell do you mean my age? 36, I'm, I'm old. And, 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 but, you know, it kind of makes sense because if you, if you think about athletes, like professional athletes, like they feel aging before anybody, right? Yeah. 
they start to get into their thirties and they're like, Oh, they're a little long in the tooth or like Tom Brady. He's like, you know, he's like a senior citizen at, at <laughs> whatever age he is now, 42. Yeah. So it, it, it hits them first. And, and then I, I started, I, I never thought of aging really at all. Yeah. And I didn't really think about it again. You know, I had the surgery on the collarbone and kind of dialed back the, the racing because it's like, just seemed a little too dangerous yeah. to, for something that I wasn't that good at. So didn't really think about aging, but then a few years later, I was I was working in um, in uh, publishing in New York for a magazine, and I think I, I turned forty. And you know, God help me, like I was at work on my fortieth birthday, which is uh. just a miserable place to be. But my colleagues gave me one of those um, tombstone cakes, like "Here lies my youth," uh. you know, age forty, and they were all like twenty-seven. So you really were ancient in their eyes. Yeah. So I was like. You know, F you guys, number one. But <laughs> they did have a point. And so, and, you know, and I'd started noticing, like, changes in my body. And, you know, it wasn't so easy to, to be fast anymore. And it wasn't so easy to get back into shape. And, you know, I'd, I'd things like I'd tweak my knee and then I'd be kind of going at half speed for six months. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of started getting curious and, you know, I, I love an unsolved problem, right? And aging is like the ultimate unsolved problem in biology. You know, JBS, I think JBS Haldane was like a great uh, British biologist, you know, 80 years ago. And, and he, he wrote about aging as the great unsolved problem and it still is. And it affects everybody which makes it a great book subject mm. and everybody's interested in it. Mm. And I started looking into it and, and this was the bonus, you know, I started looking into it and I went to some anti-aging conventions and talked to some anti-aging doctors, quote unquote, and started looking into the history and there's, there's a ton of quackery and, and scams too. And I love scams. <laughs> so it, I, I was like, this is perfect. Like I can like kind of, sharpen my science skills and really kind of investigate this thing that's relevant to me and everybody I know. And also have a little fun because, you know, there's this rich history of people trying to, trying to foist off these kind of bogus cures for aging on, on, on people, you know, going all the way down to back to like um, goat testicle implants in aging men, which was like a popular thing. Wow. In Texas, in like the nineteen nineteen thirties, couldn't have turned out well. It did not often. Yeah, you, it's hard to even imagine what the best case outcome <laughs> there would be. But interestingly, there's a whole great book about that by a guy named I think his name is Brock Pope. It's called Charlatan. It's about the guy who did these surgeries, and, and he um, he touted them on this radio station that was on the Texas-Mexico border. So it was border radio. And they first played people like, I think, like some of the early country acts, and even I think Johnny Cash when he was young. Yeah, so anyway, I went off on a tangent, but um, I started investigating the science, the or the pseudoscience of aging. Yeah, yeah. And then I had a, I made contact with a professor at um, Einstein Medical College in, in New York, 
who studies centenarians, a guy named Nir Barzilai. Oh, yeah. The Metformin guy. Yeah, and the centenarian guy. Yeah. And he was super helpful. He kind of became uh, my mentor. He had me take his biology of aging graduate course up, up at Einstein. And so I did that for a term. And that was an amazing introduction to the actual science of aging. And so that's where I learned about things like the Hayflick limit and senescent cells. Telomeres. Yeah, all, all that kind of stuff. You know, protein degradation, which people still kind of scratch their heads, but, but all this sort of the molecular stuff and cellular stuff that, that happens as we age. Mm-hmm. It's really cool science. Like there's this underlying aging process that happens all the way down to like the levels of the proteins mm-hmm. in our cells that lose their function and then they can't, they're not replaced as well and then our cells don't function as well or our mitochondria don't function as well. We don't have as much energy and it becomes this cascade. Yeah, and, uh, this accelerating decrepitude. Yeah, I was like, this is really cool stuff. But the really cool part was that scientists had figured out how to slow and even reverse aspects of aging. So they'd figured out how to, like five different ways to make a mouse live longer, right? And ranging from caloric restriction, basically starving the thing, and they live longer, turns out, knocking out certain genes, mostly related to growth hormone signaling, Mm -hmm. and certain compounds. So you could give a mouse, there's a handful of drugs you can give a mouse, and it will live longer. So there's one called rapamycin, which comes from a fungus found on Easter Island. Yes, I know it well. Down the middle of the Pacific, the most random story, but it just happens to fit into this key growth and aging pathway in our cells, in every sort of eukaryotic cell, and turn it down. So you take rapamycin, you kind of turn down the aging, you take your foot off the gas, it's quite incredible. And you know, these mice live like 20% longer and it's worked in a bunch of different animals. So it's like, I was like, holy cow, there's like a drug. This is like a real science with like real potential to be changing our lives, like within our lifespans. Right. And certainly for people younger than you and I, they're going to encounter aging in a completely different way from certainly our parents and probably, unfortunately, people like you and me. I, um, continue to feel like I might have been born a little too early to really get all the benefits of this emerging science, but my kids might get it. And I'll tell you that I'm trying my hardest. And I want to know what you think trying hard really means, but let's don't jump into that just yet. Okay. um, Don't try too hard. Yeah, too late. (laughs) Okay. But again, we'll talk about that. I have to throw this out there just for the sake of my youngest daughter who loves chickens. When people say, oh, he's no spring chicken, I know what that means. But I didn't know what a spring chicken was. I figured it had to be like a young chicken. But it turns out a spring chicken, you know, the chickens that we eat are like six weeks old. They're baby chickens. Yeah. And chickens live like 10 years. So it's like like we're eating puppies when we're eating chicken. I'd rather eat a young one than a little one. (laughs) Wow, I, I couldn't believe it. Well, anyway, so that's the spring chicken story. Yeah, so when you say you're not a spring chicken, essentially what that means is that you're not 10 years old. That's, that, that's not really that informative. Huh. You know, it's like, yeah, good. I'm glad yeah, I'm not 10 years yeah. old. 
Okay. So I wanted to transition into the next book that you have uh, co-written. Um, and I, I have to admit to you that I didn't actually know that you were involved in that. When I reached out to you, I was just, I wanted to talk to you about the spring chicken book. Mm-hmm. And then when I was doing my research, I, I was it. like, holy yeah. cow, he did the Outlive book with Peter Atia. I can't believe that. That's great. Uh, so yeah. I do want to talk about that. But I got to tell you, before we jump into that, I got to tell you my Peter Atia story. Now, he has no idea who I am. Peter Atia is who got me into this whole health span longevity area. As that curve I described was shifting for me and I was not able to compete the way I wanted to, I was listening to Peter Atia, Dr. Atia, and he's talking about his thing at that time was keto. Mm-hmm. And you know him better than I do, but anybody who has listened to him knows that he is a very smart man and he has a air of confidence about him. And that is appealing to a person who is really unsure of what is true. Because anybody that confident, there's no way they could be wrong, right? There's no way. So he convinced me to do keto. And man, I jumped into keto like it was the truth of the world with a capital T. It was, that was my religion. It, I was smarter than everybody else, except for Peter Atia, because I was doing keto and this was this secret path to this better health and better performance that was somehow weirdly baked into our bodies unintentionally. Yeah, the one true diet. Exactly, exactly. Right. And then I found out he quit keto. And I was like, what? How could he have quit the one true diet? How, how, ah. Uh. Well, then he switched to fasting. He was big into fasting. And I went, oh, that's the thing. Because you still have ketosis. You still have ketone bodies. And I got into fasting. Yeah. And then he quit fasting. So I'm like, all right, I don't follow people anymore. Yeah. I'm not a true believer. Peter doesn't want you to follow him, which I I think is is one of the um, attractive things about him, actually. I mean, unlike a lot of gurus out there, he can and will change his mind if his experience or the evidence or both dictate it. And, and that's kind of what happened with keto. I mean, I feel like he kind of burned out on keto and, you know, it served him well for a period. And, you know, it serves a lot of people well who, you know, they need to lose weight in an expedient way, or they need to address you know, some carbohydrate intolerance and keto is a great way to do that and break the cycle and break the addiction. And, you know, it's super useful tool. Like we've used it in my house off and on, you know, we did it to kind of break out of the, the, the kind of pandemic um, eating rut that we were in Mm. and it worked, but it does become like a religious thing. And, And I think as we were, as we were writing, rewriting outlive, we kind of decided like we wanted to not be religious in any way. Good. Because keto is not right for everybody, right? And not everybody needs it. And there's not one diet that's like perfect for everybody. And every diet study you read tells you that because it writes right there in the data. Like there will be this huge range of of outcomes and it's always in weight gain, right? Or weight loss. Yeah. And there will be a huge, there will be people who lose a ton of weight and then there will be people who gain weight. You know, it makes no sense. There's all this individual variation. Sure. So I first met Peter actually at a, at a Turkish restaurant in New York, 
and he was doing a one meal a day kind of deal. Uh. And uh, he ordered like half the menu <laughs> that night. I was like, this is awesome. Like, I love it. <laughs> of course, I had had breakfast and lunch uh. as well, but I ate half the menu. Went home really full. Yes, I bet. But I was like, this is, this is going to be interesting. Oh, yeah. Well, Mediterranean food is delicious. Yeah, I mean, you know, food is delicious. I'll just keep eating. Why deprive yourself? If it's junk food, no. Yeah. But yeah, so then, so the, the first round of writing, the first draft, we were onto this fasting stuff. And, you know, I'm, I have very little willpower and I'm skinny and I get very hungry. Like I can barely make it from lunch to dinner. Hmm. And I'm like, oh God, I, I have to fast. Like, <laughs> I'm, I don't want to fast. And so we had a whole huge chapter on fasting too. But the two problems were I didn't want to fast and I felt like I had to to write the chapter properly. That's probably right. Just because I, I always have to do the things that I write about. Yeah. And the other problem was, you know, we, we scoured the literature for good studies on fasting. Yeah. And they're not really there. Mm. There are like, like the best study we had was something called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. Oh, that doesn't sound good. That sounds, that sounds fun, right? <laughs> And, yeah. you know, so mechanistically fasting does some interesting things, but then, and, and this is, this is a Peter observation. Like we COVID hit, we kind of shelved the book for a while. We went away and then about eight, nine months later, or maybe a year later, he comes back and he's like, you know, I actually have gained weight. So I've gained 15 pounds, but I've gained 20 pounds of muscle mass and he quit fasting. So he was doing a serious hardcore fast, like, like once a quarter, he'd, fast for five days or something like that Yeah, yeah. while he was in New York, which is, I don't know how you even do that. And he realized that the, he was losing muscle mass mm. and he works out like a maniac. So he was, you know, you, you couldn't almost couldn't work out harder. Yeah. So he was trying his damnedest to, to put muscle mass back on. And he was still shedding it. Mm. So he realized like, Oh my gosh, the fasting is, is counterproductive, you know? Yeah. yeah it does some good things, but I'm paying the price in muscle mass. And then we looked at some of the studies and some of the alternate day fasting studies and some other studies and it. They showed that his instinct was correct and that fasting often comes at the expense of mus muscle mass before fat. Mm. So like, that's not good. And there's lots of other data showing that muscle mass is kind of key to maintaining function as we get older. Sure. So, Fasting, thank God, was out the window. Except for <laughs> so people, you didn't have to. Like in, in real, for whom nothing else works and, you know, a keto diet doesn't work or they can't get it under control and the weight's an issue. So then I think it, it can come into play. But but yeah, so that that's just an example of um, listening to your body and listening to the data and changing your mind. And if you're in a religious mindset, like this is the only way, it's hard to change your mind. Yeah. Like in politics. Well, right. Yeah. The common denominator between those two subjects is people are involved. And so there's something right. about people where that can happen. Well, interesting. So let me just uh, come back and say that I'm not sorry I did keto and I still do uh, intermittent fasting. I try to do uh, 12 hour eating windows and try to go to bed with, you know, with an empty stomach. Yeah. But yeah. the reason that I'm happy that I did keto is because it changed me forever for the better. I no longer feel hunger very intently. That's great. And so something changed in me and I have yeah. power over myself that I didn't have before. 
So I'm not unhappy about that. Anyway, that's good. I did want to ask you, because there was quite a bit of time between the two books about longevity, and maybe that's yeah. not exactly what the two yeah. books were exactly about the same thing, but what did you learn? And maybe it's new science, or maybe you just talked to more people and you maybe learned a few new tricks. What did you find? Through both books. Actually, I, I, I'm more interested in what did you learn after the first book, doing the second book, because then I'm going to come back and I'm going to ask you about your personal approach to longevity. And that would essentially be everything you've learned in your life up to this point. So Outlive explores many of the same themes as, as Spring Chicken with maybe a little more rigor, maybe a few less jokes yeah. than Spring Chicken. What did I learn? You know, we did a deep dive into why centenarians live what's their secret right why do they live to be 100 and the rest of us live to be 80 okay on average and that led us to just like if you if you look at the disease incidence of centenarians they 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 either don't develop these diseases like cancer and heart disease at all and they just drop dead of old age and, and alzheimer's or they develop them much much later in life yeah. so like decades later like cancer you know if they get it they get it like 17 to 20 years later than average or heart disease same and alzheimer's same like a decade later so their their curve of the period where they're in health is just longer and then they yeah they have the same sort of drop off but it just happens later yeah it's shifted a decade or more down the line. Okay. So they, they enjoy much greater health span, right? So they're, they're healthier for longer. I was reading, um, I was reading a, a study, I think it was a WHO thing that said like the average American, you know, lives to 79 or 79 and dropping these days, but we start to get, be affected by major disease on average when we're 63, right? So that means like you have like 16 years of your, you're being sick. And so centenarians are healthier for longer and they're sick for less time. So our medical system is really good at like prolonging this sick period of life. And our thesis was that you have to be more like the centenarians and prolong the healthy period of life, figure out how to do that. So then we did this long, deep, deep dive into cardiovascular disease, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, and diabetes and metabolic uh, dysfunction to figure out how to reduce risk and, and potentially delay them. So that was something that was that was different from spring chicken. I didn't really focus that all that much on these diseases. So you discovered this pattern. Were you guys able to come up with what to do? I understand that genes play a role, but it's a, it's a surprisingly small role. Yeah, I mean, all roads kind of lead to metabolic health uh, and avoiding or reversing metabolic dysfunction. So you don't want to be anywhere anywhere on the road to not just type 2 diabetes, but things like fatty liver and hyperinsulinemia, you know, which, you know, is the kind of the underlying cause of obesity. You certainly don't want to be obese, but like it is possible to be metabolically healthy and obese or heavy. Um, so not everybody who's who's obese is metabolically unhealthy, but there is something called the metabolic syndrome, yeah. 
which is a combination of things like blood pressure, waist circumference, uh, some, you know, low HDL, high triglycerides, and a couple of like one or two other things. And if you have three of the five, then you have this metabolic syndrome. It basically means like your metabolism is like kind of out of control and your, your body can't handle the calories that are, that are going in, in a safe way. So you're kind of like a runaway, runaway train. Yeah. And a, a stunning percentage of um, Americans either have metabolic syndrome or are close to it. Or are diabetics. Yeah. I think something like 80% have have like two of the, of right. the markers, the five markers. So, yeah. So And, and then if, if you are obese, they use obesity as, as, the, as the proxy. But, or if you have metabolic syndrome, your, your risk of, of cancer and heart disease and Alzheimer's goes up by, you know, a multiple. So that's the key. Like that's the key underlying condition. If you can avoid that, you improve your odds. To make sure I understand, and I think I've heard this before, but the the one main thing you want to do, there's a lot of things to do right, but the one thing to make sure you're getting right is to not have insulin resistance, not have metabolic syndrome. Right. And right. people get that generally because they accumulate too much body fat although the amount that it takes to make you unhealthy varies a lot by person. Some people can have a lot yep. of body fat and yep. still not have it, and other people can have very little and get sick. I've heard of this idea called metabolic flexibility in order to put a point on the idea that yeah. it's, not, it's not like about blood sugar and things like that. It's what you were born good at, which is your body is good at burning fat, and then it's good at burning glucose when you have some and then it goes right back to being good at burning fat and whether that's fat you eat or it's fat yep. in your body and your body's really good at it and switching back and forth is nothing it doesn't make you hungry it doesn't make you tired and so the way you were as a kid that's the way you want to be and one thing to do is to not have too much body fat so control how much body fat you have and that's easier said than done People who maybe already have too much, the you know, the, you know, then there's the whole set point thing. So now they're starving, and anyway, so it's a miserable thing. But the idea is, you're saying, yeah, yeah, it's a tough problem. Is yeah. that this is central to all of these conditions that will end us, and so it it's the one thing to focus on. Yeah. If you can't do, if you don't have time for doing everything right, this is the one thing to get right. Yeah, and you bring up metabolic flexibility, and you know that that really comes down to the function of our, our mitochondria, which you might remember from high school are the quote power plants of our cells. Even though they do a lot more than that, but those are responsible for burning the glucose or burning the fat. And the thing that keeps them healthy is maintaining some muscle mass is one, but also we found that this zone, what we call zone two exercise, which is basically endurance exercise, but at a pace that's not easy, but it's not so hard you can't speak in a complete sentence. Yeah, You're just kind of going, like it, it's a pace, like at one point in the book, we were calling it all day pace. So you could, you could, you, a pace you could feel like you could kind of keep, keep going for a while. Like if you're running a marathon, like what yeah. would your pace be? You know, not, you're, you're not trying to like break a record, right. but you're just trying to get through it and be out there for three hours or four hours or whatever. Much longer than that. <laughs> yeah, or five. Yeah, 
So, okay. So not even like a race pace, but like a cruising pace. And there's some good research, um, especially by a guy named Inigo Sanbalan, who's a yes. scientist and also a professional right. cycling coach and just kind of all around exercise genius, showing that people with people who do zone two basically have better functioning mitochondria. Therefore, they're more metabolically flexible and they're burning more fat at a given level of intensity. Even at rest, they're burning l more fat and less yeah. glucose. Whereas people, ironically, people who might have more fat stores, but are sedentary and are less trained and their mitochondria are sort of like less efficient. It's like a less efficient right. engine in your car. They're burning glucose all the time and they can barely access their, their fat stores. So it's kind of like this cruel irony. Because they have unhealthy mitochondria and so now they're making tons of lactate yeah. and hydrogen ions and no wonder they yeah. hate exercising. It's torture. Yeah, no, and it's this vicious, vicious circle, right? It's like really hard to start exercising. And I feel fortunate that, you know, like my parents and especially my mom sort of got us out probably to, to tire us out because she was a single mom and she'd run us around in the woods and, and like Funny. <laughs> make, make sure we got as tired as possible every day. It just became a habit. But zone two is, is awesome. But, you know, zone two, anybody can do zone two. It's not that hard. Like you can just, if you're not in shape, you can go walk, go walk for half an hour. Right. In fact, I think that like zone one is almost as good. Probably is. It probably is. Yeah, and another thing, some things change, right? So, you know, some things were, you know, I, I wrote about rapamycin in Spring Chicken, and we wrote about rapamycin in Outlive, not much changed. Although it is being studied more intensively, so it's a little bit farther down the road. Oh, it's commonplace now. I take rapamycin. Do you really? Yeah, yeah. How does that work out for you? Yeah, we'll get into that before we get off here. Oh, I oh, feel great. Okay. I'll tell you all about it when we get into what do you do. And I'll tell you about rapamycin. Yeah. So go ahead. So when, another thing that changed that I should I should talk about is like so I wrote in Spring Chicken about how healthy red wine is and how great uh, red wine is and it turns out that's bullshit. <laughs> and, uh, probably. I mean, which is really the biggest bummer. Yeah. So now there are all these studies saying like the less alcohol the better and saying that the alcohol studies are especially red wine studies are are, are kind of confounded basically because the people who drink red wine and are healthy are healthy enough to drink red wine at older ages and then all the like alcoholics died so it kind of skews the sample oh that's funny although there's got to be a little bit of how drinking red wine makes you happy and making you and being happy makes you live longer yeah i'm, I'm right there with you on that and um if, if you want my bottle of chateau neuf de pop you're gonna have to pry it out of my cold dead hands <laughs> I hear so you. So I'm hoping if we hang on long enough, the pendulum will swing back. And it might. They'll be like, okay, it, it's good to relax. It relaxes you. It does some good things to your oh, yeah. circulatory system somehow. But, yeah. you know. Don't throw all your bottles of wine out just yet. Just hold on to yeah, them a bit yeah. longer. Don't drink them all in one day either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good advice. Uh, okay, so let's get into this. Uh, let's get into the details here. Let's talk turkey. I want to get into essentially what's pertinent to the older athlete, the audience uh, listening to us. Yeah. You know, we want to get into what is the best way for the older athlete to slow aging without having to spend all of the rest of their life doing it, 
right? You know, the Brian Johnson's of the world who it's an, oh, yeah. it's an eight or 12 hour a day job doing all of the yeah. 105 supplements and other treatments that they've and shots and exercise, you know, it, God bless him. I hope it works out. I doubt it, but okay. But for the rest of us who, you know, we've busy lives and we would like to be healthy for as long as possible. How do we prioritize and get the biggest bang for our buck? And how do we make good bets for, you know, risk versus reward? What's this, what kind of a framework would you say? I mean, you've put, for a non-scientist, you've put a lot of thought into this. You know, what, what do you think? Yeah. Well, I think rule, rule number one is don't get hurt, hmm. right? So obviously, I don't know. I do a lot of risky things. Like I, um, I live in Salt Lake City and everybody, like everybody around me, I'm, I'm obsessed with skiing, hmm. alpine skiing, also Nordic skiing, but, but mostly alpine. And it's pretty dangerous. Tree skiing. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of bad stuff can happen. So I try to like be as careful as, as possible while still having a good time. But that also means, like right now, like today, I went to the gym because I'm working on building strength to, you know, resist injury and, and get less tired. Hmm. When you're tired, you know, you can make mistakes and fall. So not getting injured is key. And, and the ways to do that are if you're just an endurance athlete, I think you have to add some strength work, especially as you get older. And I personally, like, I have never liked the gym, but as a result of working with Peter mostly and having this stuff kind of drummed into me, I've started going to the gym, you know, I've worked with a trainer, I figured out how to do it. And I, I, I've started to find some, some satisfaction. Like I, I enjoy watching the little plates go up and down and yeah, I'm pushing <laughs> these plates up and down and feels good. And I have uh, you know, I, I look like I'm not ripped, but like, Okay, it's good to have some strength. You like looking at yourself with the shirt off now? Yeah, yeah. I take the shirt off and get all greased up. And, <laughs> uh, post some pictures on the gram. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, I mean, it's pretty simple. Like, But you, you kind of have to add like what you don't like. You have to do a little bit of what you don't like. So like, if you don't like the endurance stuff, it's kind of too bad. Like, You kind of have to do it. And if you're just doing strength like that's not enough if you're just doing zone two like biking or whatever it's probably not enough and especially as you get older like you need the weight bearing so walking is you know i'm, I'm a big believer like like the foundation of my entire program is my morning walk with my dogs mm. that like gets me moving in the morning which i kind of hate exercising in the morning it gets me out in the sunshine, in the sunlight, in the morning, which I think is key for setting, you know, my circadian clock. Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel like more, I'm a, I've become a, this isn't in any of my books, but I've become a real believer in, in morning sunlight, mm -hmm. um, not with sunglasses. And I feel like that, and I've been doing some research there and I, I you know, it turns out that that helps stimulate the production of melatonin. Mm -hmm which then becomes crucially important at the end of the circadian cycle in the dark part for helping you go to sleep. Mm. And, you know, just a little bit of exercise and, and weight bearing and walking, you know, for half an hour 
I think is, is good for like bone health and it, it's, it's good for, um, you know, scrubbing that little, like maybe I had a glass of wine the night before mm. makes you feel a little better. And it scrubs that last little bit of like extra glucose out of my, mm. out of my system. So I, I can kind of like start the day fresh. Very nice. Um, so that's really the foundation. Okay. So that, you know, the little extra stuff I think is, is important. It's not exercise, quote unquote. It's not training, quote unquote. It's just part of my life, but it's activity and it's outdoor exposure, which I think is essential. And so that's kind of the foundation. And then there's the zone two stuff that I like, like riding my bike. I love riding my bike or cross-country skiing, skate skiing in the winter. And then I've added the strength stuff, which I don't like as much, but I kind of feel better. Like even in my office, I have these, uh, you know, have these little push-up handle things that are on the floor. So if I'm kind of bored or, you know, a little annoyed, I'll go bang out 15 push-ups. Nice little exercise and, snacks uh, during the day. Yeah. So you can do like little bursts of exercise and just make it part of your life. Um, but then here's, here's the other piece of it that I'll plead guilty to neglecting lately. But for a while I was doing a lot of um, yoga of various kinds, but mostly the, the kind of, you know, the mellow yoga, restorative yoga. And I found that was a great balance to, you know, being hunched over on the bike or being, you know, bopping around on skis and my body just really appreciated once a week or twice a week going to the yoga studio and and the kind of the flexibility, the kind of the low key strength stuff, and especially the balance that I learned in yoga. You know, you can learn so much about. You just get so much more in touch with like how your how your body's feeling, every part of it, mm -hmm. and how you learn a lot of sort of proprioceptive control and, and balance and. I just think it's, um, you know, if you find a good teacher, it's, it can be a, a great addition to your practice. Interesting. Physical intelligence is a concept that um, I encountered yes. recently. And the exercise for the sake of the muscles is, and the bones is fine. That's good. That, you know, it's useful. But exercise that engages the brain, you know, you're getting so many benefits from it. Yep. So it, don't call it exercise. It's just activity. Yeah. And... You know, if you're doing something like skiing or playing tennis or playing golf, you, you're engaging that kind of intelligence. I remember um, when I was in, in college, I, was, I had a number of friends who were on the, um, on, the, on the ski team. And I was like, these guys and, and gals were just on a different level, like as far as like how their brains were communicating, how their brains and their bodies were sort of like unified. It was like crazy it was like they were geniuses of movement it was unbelievable to watch and later i you know i've written about some pretty interesting athletes hmm. and you see the same thing it's like it's uncanny and and the rest of us kind of like we're getting a c minus on that on that <laughs> exam uh, or a b yeah there's all different kinds of geniuses some of them physical yes there are there are let me just try to summarize what i've i thought i think i heard you say and correct me where I've, I've got it wrong. The basics is sort of where you want to, there's sort of like a set of foundational things, diet and physical activity and sleep and stress. And I'm, I'm throwing more things into the stack than you mentioned, but I'm sure that you believe then they're right. Yeah. And you want to, and you don't want to be the perfect at any one of them and let others 
waste away. So you're trying to hit some minimum essentially for everything. You're trying to because you're you are your weakest link. So to, you know work work on your low hanging fruit. Whatever's the needs the least effort in order to make a big bang is going to be the thing that you haven't been doing. Yeah. So do something on everything. And then I, I think a part of that, and you didn't mention this, but I think that it also is, goes without saying that, you know, if your physiology is somehow in decline, you know, you're older and maybe your blood pressure is a little high or your blood sugar is a little high or you've got a high calcium score or, you know, whatever it is, you should probably take some medication to try to stop the damage that those elevated things are probably causing. Now, maybe you can get off of these drugs. I'm throwing my own beliefs here, but maybe you can get off of these drugs at some point, but take the drugs to stop the damage while you then get your diet under control or whatever you need to in order to not need those drugs. But in the meantime, take, you know, I think that this is a part of this low hanging fruit. Get yourself to where there's, you have no terrible weaknesses in these foundational things. I mean, does that sound about right? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're talking about blood pressure, I mean, blood pressure meds make tend to make people feel like crap. So if you can find some way to uh, get it down without medication, um, that's probably preferable. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, t- I talked about yoga, but there's like breathing stuff you can do. And, um, you know, again, sun exposure, well, fantastic. I'm I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. I'm just saying that if it's going to take you five years to get your blood pressure down, you've hurt yourself. So do it fast, however you can. And yeah. and if you have to do something fast that you don't like, then yeah. do that. But get off of it as quick as you can. Uh, I guess is all that I'm trying to say. And I'm. It's not like I'm an expert in here, but yeah. I'm just trying to be like a rational, reasonable person and adding on to what you were saying, which is. Make sure that you're not, that you don't have any terrible weaknesses in the foundational things. You're, you're doing something for everything. Yeah. I mean, you know, if your set of habits has led you to a bad place, then you need to rethink that set of habits. I'll, and I'll give you one example. Um, you know, when I was working on spring chicken, I was coming up on my deadline, which I completely blew, but I was um, working 14 hours a day and I was like trying to work like late at night up until like one or two in the morning and then getting up early and just wasn't going well. And I didn't feel good and it probably wasn't very healthy. And at a certain point I just was like, I, I can't do this. So I'm going to go to bed when I'm tired and I'm going to wake up when I am ready to wake up. So I basically, I, I gave myself permission to sleep enough, which I think a lot of people don't do. You know, we, we, burn the candle at both ends and we have an alarm that's kind of for a lot of us like not changeable in the morning but i, I just let myself sleep as long as i i needed to and luckily i was a freelancer so I, I could do that but even now when there is an alarm i make sure to give myself that window of at least eight hours in bed every night and it's made a huge change and i think in, in just about everything productivity i just feel better um, I can do more stuff. I don't feel like napping. And did it help you get the book finished? It absolutely did. I was a much better writer. Fantastic. Rested Bill is a much better writer. <laughs> that first draft was crap. <laughs> well, the the last draft was really good. I, I'll tell you that. Yeah. 
Okay, so the the next thing then, which you touched on, but I'm going to elaborate a little bit as I am want to do. You'll you know now is a kind of this like optimization, and that's where you try to accomplish multiple things at the same time, right? You know, you're not yeah. just exercising; you are going outside to exercise with your dog in the sunshine. So I'm getting sunshine, I'm getting some, you know, social fun time with my dog, I'm getting some, you know, my heart rate up, I'm, you know, I'm getting all of these things yep. all at once. And so this is how I get so many things done is because I'm not trying to carve out 14 hours a day to do all the things that I have to do. I'm doing things that I like and I'm accomplishing yeah. all of the things that I need to be a healthy person very efficiently because it's all together. It's all the same stuff. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And this is where, um, this is where Peter and I diverge a little bit. Like he's very diligent and exercising to him is like a job. For me, it's probably not enough of a job, but I'm much more of a, like, I'll do things cause they're fun and that they have might have some exercise benefit uh, baked in, sure. like a hike, right? But now he does hiking too. Now he does his rucking stuff. Oh, yeah, with his 100-pound backpack. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How to ruin a hike. Um, <laughs> no, but, it you know, wrecking is great. Like, that that's an ass-kicker of a workout. Oh, I spent 20 years living in Colorado, hiking all there the time, go. carrying yeah. heavy backpacks. But that's because I was going somewhere, and I needed yeah. that stuff. Yeah. I wasn't carrying 100 pounds of rocks around because I was a knucklehead. Not 100 100 pounds of dog food. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Okay. So uh, we're going to run out of time here. I wanted to, the last okay. thing then that I wanted to touch on is, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it the icing on the cake. And that would be, again, you know, maybe the, you know, a 30-year-old might want to dabble. But, you know, for the older person who, they can feel it. They can see it in the mirror. They, they you know, they're, they're in decline. You know, the, these little bits of things that have gone wrong and they've started to accumulate. Maybe the immune system has started to go wrong and it's not repairing the other things as well as it used to and too many senescent cells, blah, blah, blah. And so it's this accumulating, maybe accelerating problem. You know, where when you're 20, you can tell what a that a 30 year old is not a 20 year old but mm. it's not that big of a difference and then the 40 year old okay that's a that's a pretty big difference but a 50 year old wow that's that's a huge a 60 year old you know so it's like these these huge leaps it's a logarithmic yeah. thing for sure yeah okay so the icing on the cake is longevity medicine there are rapamycin we've talked about i'll tell you about my use of it there are lots of drugs the first thing that i ever heard of as a longevity medicine was metformin that was peter atia and uh barzillai and they were talking about how they yep. you know that study that's sort of been debunked a little bit uh, of how you know people uh, diabetics on metformin lived longer than non-diabetics not on metformin okay yeah. Anyway, so I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, maybe I should be on sure the metformin. Yeah. But, of course, you go to your doctor and you say, hey, I'd like a little of that metformin. And they're like, get the hell out of here. What are you talking about? I'm not giving you that. Okay, yeah. well. They'll, they'll give you Ozempic, though. <laughs> they'll give you a $1,000 shot of Ozempic. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but here's, here's the thing. The medical industry has progressed a lot 
and maybe it's been a COVID thing, but telemedicine has gotten a lot of leeway. And so there are plenty of uh, longevity uh, medicine practices out there that you don't have to go to your primary care physician. And as long as you're healthy enough, they will prescribe you things that are off-label. Everything, yeah. And the idea is that if you take these things, you maybe you don't get younger, but it really slows down your aging, right? And what's the proof? Well, okay, we don't have real proof exactly, but what we have is that when you give it to old mice, they live a lot longer. Or you give it yeah. to worms, they live a lot longer. Yeah. These are physiologically conserved mechanisms, you know, mTOR. And so there's every reason to believe, right? That there would be some positive effect for people. Now, maybe there isn't. And people like me who are taking rapamycin are taking a little bit of a gamble on that. You are. But that's what a lot of people are doing as the icing on the cake to try to roll things back. Okay, so what has my experience been? Well, I've been doing it for like five months now. And I would say that mostly I feel nothing from it. Uh, I do get the occasional hmm. ulcer, you know, in my mouth, hmm. which is very common. How often do you take it? Do you take it continuously or? Once a week. Once a week. Okay. I, take a sm I take a small dose once a week. Yeah. Look, I'm, I'm not a doctor, so I can't really. Uh, you're, you are experimenting on yourself, but you know that. And you seem to be okay with it. Uh, well, for now, you know, I take, I get blood tests every couple of months and I'm, I'm watching to yeah. make sure that, you know, somebody should study people like you and keep, keep tabs on you. Yeah. And, and well, there's a lot of this going on. There are studies going on. Are yeah. there? Okay. That's good to know. So this longevity medicine thing is big business. There's a lot of money going into this field mm -hmm. now. And so now there's not a lot of money to be made in rapamycin. It's off patent. So, you know, nobody's, yeah. Nobody really wants to study rapamycin, but people are doing it anyway. Or metformin. Right, yeah. same problem for yeah. metformin. But yeah. again, it's big business. There's a thousand nutritional supplements that you know are for sale that yeah. anybody yeah. can buy. And nobody and no doctor is making sure that you're not taking 50 of them all at the same time and taking, you know, 10 times a physiologic dose and and making sure that you're getting a blood test to make sure that, you know, something terrible isn't happening to you. So, you know, if you're not careful, you can become addicted to this stuff. I say that because I am addicted. I know it's possible because I am addicted to it. I'm taking too much stuff. The rapamycin is the one thing I'm being careful about. The other things I have not been careful about, but I'm backing off big time. I am... Uh, not taking as many anymore. I've been doing podcasts with uh, people talking about this subject and, uh, and they say, Hey, you should be careful. Yeah. You know, supplements, I feel like they should be targeted and, you know, there should be well supported or as well supported as possible by, you know, at least some data. And I feel like if you start taking too many, then you, you really are setting yourself up for potentially bad, interactions either short or long term or you're also spending a shit ton of money on stuff that it might not even have what it says it has on the label you know because right. 
because of the regulation is such a shambles exactly. and the verification, you know, they found all these supplements from like Walmart and CVS that like didn't have, they had like grass clippings. In them. <laughs> well, maybe that's good for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, it, it comes from outside. So it's gotta be good. <laughs> that's right. Who doesn't love the smell of freshly mown grass? <laughs> that's right. Yes. It, well, you know, the problem is that the that, marketing yeah. is really good and human beings are really susceptible to wishful thinking. And when yeah, it says, yeah. hey, this extended the life of a worm by 5%, and I'm thinking, well, if it's extended, you know, if this, if I'm taking 27 things that extended life by 5%, well, I'm going to live a long time. Yeah, but in worms or in mice. Yeah. Like, that's got to be like in capital letters, in mice, you know, doesn't mean anything. Well, it might not it's mean anything. I, I mean, it might it might be yeah. true, but nobody knows yet. Uh, there, I mean, the, the whole the the um, the NIH is spending some money on this, and um, and so you know they they're yeah. doing some tests, but I, but it's in yeah, mice. They have a rigorous testing. Program. But it's in mice. Yeah. It's not in people, and yeah, yeah. And they probably will never. Bigger problem is it's really hard to study longevity. There's no pathway. The FDA has barely cracked the door open to approving any kind of drug that would sort of broadly improve people's longevity, and that is reduce their susceptibility to diseases of aging over time. I mean, that's going to be a really hard door to, to, to get through, to crack open for any drug. It's all about, like, what are your immediate symptoms or what's the immediate indication, and does the drug fix it quickly? So the whole system is not set up for a legit anti-aging drug to to make it. So that's gonna yeah. that's gonna be a battle. Yeah. For and you know people like you are starting to like knock on the door with your rapamycin, but yeah. you know it's gonna take. There's a rapamycin study in dogs, the dog aging project, yeah. which is happening now. Probably have results in a couple of years, and then from that maybe there will be a. Uh, some sort of clinical trial in humans, but somebody's going to have to pony up money right. to make that happen for a drug that's off patent. Yeah, you know. So meanwhile, so you have a drug that could delay or prevent cancer potentially, which is something that rapamycin has been shown to do in mice. But meanwhile, like the drug companies are selling lots of chemotherapy drugs. So that's where the 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 economic interest is is not in helping you age better. Yeah. Or they don't see it yeah. that way. And, I, and I'm running out of time, right? I can't wait okay. 20 years for them to decide that some drug is going to extend my life 5%. No. Yeah, legit. You know? yeah. But on the other hand, if I take too many of the wrong things, I've shortened my life or I've, I've injured myself and now I, I feel miserable even though I'm still alive. And um, so, anyway, it's a tightrope to walk. So I would look at all of your supplements that you said you take and just look at each one. It's kind of like if you have, like, too many stocks in your portfolio. You're like, why the hell do I own this? Just look at each one and be like, why do I take this? What's the best case for it? Do I need it? Yeah. If you can't make a good case for it, toss it. Yeah, and I've done that, and I ended up tossing one of 30 things. And so my next... That's like me with my t-shirts. Yeah. 
<laughs> there you go. Uh, my new rule is, I like and I one. haven't implemented it yet, is that my rule is that I get 10 things. Okay. Pick That's your 10. Pick your 10. Yeah, good rule. And if I want, and if a new thing comes out and I want that, all right, fine. What are you dropping? And that's how I'm going to stay okay. sane. Okay. Yeah. So you got to you got to stay sane, and you know you have to tell yourself. I think a lot of it is mental, right? You kind of have to tell yourself a good story about aging. Like I'm going to be thriving. I'm going to be doing lots of fun stuff, and I'm going to be I'm going to do the things that will let me keep enjoying life as long as possible. Yeah. And I think that maybe as a part of that, you should be doing the things that make you enjoy life right now. Absolutely. You should Have be fun. like doing trips Play. and making memories and marking time. There I mean, go. the worst thing a person can do is to not do anything memorable because time flies when you have no memories. Yep. That was the, the nightmare of COVID for us, right? It just day after day, it was like Groundhog Day. Yeah, exactly. All right, Bill. We talked about a lot of different things here. What else would you want to tell people? And also, where should people, I mean, aside from every bookstore <laughs> on the planet, uh, where should people go to find out more about your books and you? Well, I'm on, um, I'm on Twitter at Bill Gifford and LinkedIn, but I don't do much there. Um, I do some speaking. Spring Chicken was, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're paying attention to Spring Chicken at it's kind of like a little bit of a cult cult classic, but it, it was a fun book to write, and I, I hope it's a fun book to read. Yes, it is. It's still out there. It's in paperback. Yeah. It was a great precursor to writing Outlive. Yes. When I finally put two and two together and, you know, and found out you were the co-writer of Outlive, it was like, no wonder Peter Atia went for you to help him with that book, because <laughs> Spring Chicken is really good. Thank you. And thanks for paying attention to it. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, great. All right. Well, Bill, thanks very much. Thanks for making some time here. Joe, thank you. I've enjoyed our chat. Yeah, me too. All righty. But you have a good night. Yeah. Keep riding. You too. And uh, skiing. Okay. Bye-bye. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening in to my talk with Bill Gifford, the author of Spring Chicken and co-author of Outlive. I hope you had as much fun as I did. 